0: We are in the book of Acts, so I would uh, ask you to look, uh, open the Bible that you have there up to the book of Acts. We're going to be at the tail end of chapter 12, and that is on page 636, if you're using the Bible that's in front of you. Uh, I'll say it again because I probably haven't said it for a while, but uh, that Bible is a gift to you if you need it, so take it if you know someone that needs a Bible or would Benefit from having that one, take it with you and give it to them. We'd love to see God's Word in as many hands as possible, and that's one way we can do it. So, um, yeah. So, last week we looked at Peter's miraculous escape from prison. And so, this is, this is an unbelievable story. This would be uh, something of, of legend uh, in this day and age that we're talking about. So, this story of Peter escaping from prison probably got told. Over and over and over again, as a story of lore, if, if Peter came into town, that was probably one of the monikers people gave. Like, wow, that's Peter. Like, you remember the story about the prison break? Like, that was Peter, that dude right there. And it's unbelievable. Uh, there, there is, uh, there's, uh, there's. I said last week, I want to correct myself, I said last week that, uh, that there were 12 soldiers guarding him. I was incorrect. There were 16 soldiers guarding him and uh, 16. And none of them were aware that any of this even happened. So Peter goes to sleep, chained nude to two guards on the ground, and, uh, and the angel of the Lord wakes him up and gets him out of prison, and none of the guards are even aware of it. And Peter thinks he's having a dream, and the gates of the city open of their own accord, the word says, and he walks out into freedom, and the angel leaves. And that's when he realizes, wait, this isn't a dream. I have, I have, I have clothes now, and I, I, I'm dressed, and I'm outside of the city. I'm not in chains anymore. So he gets over to the house where all of the, the followers, not all the followers, but some of the followers of Jesus and the church are gathered, and they're praying. They are earnestly praying for Peter. And the servant girl says, I recognize Peter's voice outside. Peter's outside the gate. I'm so excited about that, I actually forgot to let him in. But he's out there. You got to come with me. And they tell her, "You're out of your mind. You are out of your mind." Peter is not there. You're probably seeing his angel, and uh, meaning that they probably believed he was already dead. And uh, and the Herod wasn't going to make a skeptical or a big spectacle of this uh, that that he was already dead. And they're saying, "No, okay. Well, if you hear Peter, he's probably already gone, and you see his, you hear his angel." And when they opened verse uh, verse sixteen, and when they opened the gate, they saw him and were amazed. And we talked a little bit about how that's how we pray sometimes, isn't it? We we pray for something big, we expect something big, and then when God brings that big answer to prayer to our door, we're like, that can't be true. That must be an angel. There's no way God actually answered our prayer, and they didn't they didn't see it at first, and so they. Uh, Peter is motioning them uh, with his hand to be silent because he, that's verse 17. He doesn't, want, he doesn't want to get caught, right? Like, stop causing a ruckus. So I don't want to cause a scene here. I don't want people to really know that I'm out yet. Uh, I want you to know, but I want them to know. And, uh, and so he is telling them to be quiet. And in verse 17, it says, He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. That's important. Hold that. Hold that how it ends with Peter, because we're going to talk about that at the end. Uh, Tell these things to James and to the brothers, and then he departed and went to another place. So we're going to pick up at verse 18 today, uh, 18 through 25. It's the end of the chapter. There's some dark stuff that happens here. We're going to try to explain it and unpack it. But starting in verse 18, Now when the day came, There was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had happened or what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. We talked about him earlier. Remember, we talked about how how bad they were at giving nicknames in the Bible? That's John. We call him Mark. So there's a lot going on here. And it's actually, uh, it's, 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 it's unbelievable to unpack this. But Luke starts with what I believe to be one of his greatest understatements. Picture the scene. Herod has gained enough favor with the Jews by claiming that since his grandfather married a Jewish woman, he can claim Jewish heritage. He's gained enough favor with the Jews that he was able to put James to death, James the brother of John. And now, because of the momentum coming off of his his gaining favor with the Jews, he wants to gain even more favor, so he uses that as leverage to arrest Peter. And this is going to be his shining moment as the king. He has gained favor with the Jewish people, and he is going to kill the number one mouthpiece of the gospel, and he's going to get the credit for it. So what the Jewish people want is to shut down what they call a rebellion, Jesus started it. They thought they shut it down with Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes. It grows beyond their comprehension. But I think they believe that if they can shut Peter up, it'll be akin to shutting Jesus up. And so this is going to be Herod's shining moment. Herod has Peter locked up. 16 of my best centuries guarding him. He's going to die in the morning. So Herod wakes up, gets himself ready. This is going to be his shining moment. And Luke starts with this unbelievable understatement. When he says, Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. There was no little disturbance. That's a weird way of saying things went nuts. Like things went crazy. These 16 guys just realized whenever they get up or whenever they come on guard and they look, that this guy, that when they laid down, was chained to them naked. He's gone. His clothes are gone, and there's no evidence that anything was broken. There's no, like, sign that someone hooked their tractor up to the bars and pulled the door away, right? There's there's no evidence that a prison break actually happened. So Luke starts off with this. When day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. When day came, the soldiers were in a huge mess. Imagine the calamity when 16 men, two of which were chained to Peter, have to tell the king that his prized prisoner got away. Imagine the calamity that comes with that. Imagine the fear that comes with that. Their eventual fate, I think they know, is coming. There's probably a lot of finger pointing. Well, you were chained to him. How did you let this happen? You were the one by the door. You were the one guarding the main gate to the city. It's probably a lot of finger pointing, right? So I imagine it, at least. What we know is that this sets Herod off big time, and somebody's got to pay for it. So he didn't, it didn't matter to Herod who was to blame out of the 16. They're all going to die. So after Herod himself searched for him and didn't find him, he examined the sentries, essentially asks them questions. They can't give them sufficient answers. And so he ordered that they should be put to death. So verse 19 then tells us an important detail that I think could easily be skirted over. Whenever it says after that he put them to death, it says then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Herod left Judea for Caesarea and spent time there. Now, if you have your Bible open and you can see the word Caesarea, that's how it's pronounced, but that's not really how it's phonetically spelled. You can't say the word Caesar without saying Caesarea. Can you see it? Caesarea was like a mini Rome in Judea. This was the least Jewish city in all of Judea. This was a city that was built to try, this was an area that was built to try to look like Rome. They wanted to honor Caesar. They wanted it to be a great city. They saw Rome as a great city, the Roman Empire, and they wanted to be a part of it. This signifies Herod giving up his ruse of being a good Jewish king. When he loses Peter, he just gives up the lie. He just walks away from it. No longer is he trying to please the Jewish people. No longer is he trying to gain their favor. He leaves the Jewish people in in Jerusalem there. He leaves them. And he goes down into Caesarea because he's given up the ruse of being a good Jewish king. What he was striving for, not what he's striving for anymore. Now, when we get into... Uh, verse 20, it says, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. So We don't know why he was angry with them. It doesn't elaborate on that. We don't really have any historical documents that answer that question. So it's one of those questions that if you were sitting in Bible study, you could say, I wonder why Herod was angry. And you could talk about it forever, but you don't have any answers, so let's not talk about it. Tyre and Sidon are in an area known as Phoenicia. Anytime Phoenicia is mentioned in the New Testament, it's never in a positive context, by the way. Phoenicia is a mess, but these are both large commercial port cities, and they don't have any agriculture. They're port cities, which means they bring things in, and they're important, but they have grown themselves. Any f- it's kind of like when you drive up 611. Once you get past Doylestown, you start to, far- start to see farms again, but if you talk to somebody who lived there, lived here in this area for like 40 years, they'll tell you, well, while Walmart is, it used to be a farm. Where Lowe's is, it used to be a farm, right? Well, Lowe's used to be a drive-in, right? So people will tell you there's farmlands and stuff. Well, as as this port city becomes more important, they start building more buildings and more places, and they move all their agriculture out. They have no agriculture left in their society, so they depend on Judea, the northern parts, the farmlands, where where there's good irrigation to bring the food supply down to them. So it behooves them to stay in the good graces of King Herod because King Herod is the one that sends the food down to them. So what they do is they make nice with blastus. Blastus, it says in scripture, is uh, the king's chamberlain. And that that basically would equate to like a secretary of state, if you're going to put that in today's lingo. It's pretty high up. In the government, he's he's one of the king's right-hand men. So they make nice with him. Somehow they gain favor with him. And in verse 20, Luke doesn't give us all the details, but he does tell us that they've persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They ask for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. So these cities made friends with Blastus, and they try to leverage that for peace. They don't really care if they have peace. They just care that they continue to get from the king what they want from the king. Now, we don't know how this is resolved. That's another part of this that we don't really know. We don't know how it got resolved. We don't know what, uh, what happened, what, what came about for the resolution of this to take place. But what we do know is at some point, Herod is, uh, this is resolved, because verse 21 takes us to a different point. But Josephus was a Jewish historian, so we don't have scripture, but we do have history, Jewish history written by Josephus, and he, he records that uh, around the time that this is happening, that uh, Herod puts together games, Games in Caesarea to honor Caesar. sort of like Olympic-style games or uh, the, the kind of like gladiator games. He puts on these games to honor Caesar. And when it says in verse 21 that on an appointed day, that's what it's talking about. The appointed day was the day that sees that, uh, that, that Herod had put on these games to honor Caesar. So now these major cities have somehow, through Blastus, made peace. They get Herod there. Herod's there. He puts on the games, and the games are going to honor Caesar, right? So Herod uses all of that to leverage a crowd. Again, we know that Herod is kind of an egomaniac. Now look at verse 21, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. It doesn't sound like much because afterwards it says the people were shouting the voice of a God, not of a man. Now, was he that good of an orator? You can read this and ask all kinds of questions. Was Herod that good of a public speaker that they were like, oh my word, he is so good. He's like a God and not a man. All he's doing is talking, right? That's what we have in front of us. But Josephus tells the story that uh, Herod had a robe made of silver thread and started his speech at the peak of sunrise. So as the sun was beating down right where he was sitting, the sun would have reflected off of his robe and shone light out against the crowd. The one commentary I looked at said, think that you were going to uh, uh, an, inaugurate, an inaugural address in Washington, D.C. at the peak of sunrise and the president was wearing a suit made of aluminum foil." The reflection that would have come off of that was hitting the people. And as the people saw the reflection coming off of this king, a a radiance, if you will, Caesar, I mean, Herod took that and the people saw that. And they said that the voice of a God and not of a man. He mesmerized the crowd when the sun hit him. Verse 22, it tells us that the people were shouting, like I said, the voice of a God and not of a man. And what we see happen in this moment is that Herod finally found a crowd better suited for his ego. He finally found the perfect crowd to feed his ego. He took the steps, the calculated steps, to get to this spot. He chose the perfect time and the perfect clothing, and he finally gets the ego boost that he's looking for. Now, I want to remind us of something that, uh, that Peter says... Uh, let me see here. Back in, uh, back in chapter 3 of Acts, Peter speaks in Solomon's portico. If you remember, it's talking about that. And Peter says, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So here's what happened in that part is that Peter was through the Holy Spirit's power able to command a man who couldn't walk to walk and he walks in front of the people and they're all trying to give Peter the credit for it, Peter the glory for it. They're asking questions, how did this happen? And instead of Peter absorbing the glory like Herod does here, he turns it back on the proper source. That's what we do when we know that God has done something in and through us. We turn the glory back on God We don't absorb it like Herod does. We don't create opportunity to absorb more glory for ourselves. That's not what this life is all about. And Herod pays a huge price for this. In Acts 9, we see another instance, the healing of Aeneas. And Peter says in 9.34, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Peter didn't say, I heal you. He didn't say, I am here to bring you something you couldn't bring yourself. He says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and walk. Again, the glory. Back on to the glory, the one who should get the glory. It's the exact opposite of what Herod does. Now, this is a big deal. When someone intentionally steps in to rob God of his glory, God does not take that lightly. And that's what we see happen here. The angel of the Lord, by the way, in chapter 12, has shown up twice. The angel of the Lord showed up once to free Peter from prison. Now, who got the glory for Peter coming out of prison? This is an easy one, folks. This is a church answer. God, nice work. I spoon-fed it to you, but maybe you'll get it next time. God. God got the glory for it because Peter thought he was having a dream. Like, there's no way any of this could be explained. But Herod, sitting on a throne, ready to give a speech, wearing his silver robe, waiting for the sun to peak, knows that he orchestrated this whole thing. I brought the peace. I brought the people. I honored Caesar. I have the games here. I have the throne here. I have the perfect clothes. In a couple seconds, it'll be the perfect time. This is going to be amazing. And he has his moment. He has his moment. Now, scholars differ on what happens next. When the angel of the Lord shows up here, it's to judge and bring God's judgment. Sorry, the angel isn't judging. God does the judging and bring God's judgment down on Herod for not giving God the glory. And it says that immediately... So the people scream, the voice of a God and not of a man. And they can picture Herod, Herod just, yeah, bring it on, keep it up, right? And it says in the very next verse, 23, Luke records it this way, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he, not, he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now, where scholars differ is what happens here. Some people believe that Herod died right that instant, and when it says that he was eaten by worms, his body was buried like any other human body, and his body was eaten by worms like any other body would be. Some scholars believe that. Some scholars go back and say, but that's not how it's worded. That's not the order of it. So Some people believe that right in that moment, Herod was stricken with something, and worms literally ate him until he died. There's no instance that he died right then and there. All we know is that he died. So we know that immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. We know that he was eaten by worms. We know that he breathed his last. I don't know if the order is all that important. I don't know if the cause of death is all that important. It's gruesome nonetheless, right? But something important to look at here is no matter how you interpret it, Herod dies. This great man, right? This great and powerful king dies. Now, just like any other man, though, his flesh gets eaten by worms. The only one that died and whose flesh didn't get eaten by worms was Christ. Christ. Because his body wasn't in the grave long enough for that to happen. You could make, it a, you could make an argument that happened to Lazarus too, but he eventually died again. Poor guy had to go through that twice. There's an important question that comes from all this that I think we need to look at, though. And the question is, is God an egomaniac? Is God an egomaniac? that if someone else gets a credit other than God, he will strike them down. Doesn't that sound a little egocentric? How can God say, I want all the glory, and you can't have any of it, and not be a selfish or egomaniac God? It's a question people ask, and I think it's a fair one to ask. In his book, uh, Desiring God... John Piper addresses that question, and this is what he says, and it's a far better answer than I could give you on my own. He says this, Because God is unique as an all-glorious, totally self-sufficient being. He must be for himself if he is going to be for us. The rules of humanity that belong to a creature cannot apply in the same way to the one who created them. If God should turn away from himself as the source of infinite joy, he would cease to be God. He would deny the infinite worth of his own glory. He would imply that there is something more valuable outside himself. He himself would commit idolatry. Does that make sense? Does that resonate with you? A creator turning his glory over to a created being, ceases to make him an all-powerful creator. So this is not God being an egomaniac. Those are human terms that we might throw out. This is not a proper way for people, a proper reason for people to say, see, that's why I don't believe in God, or that's why I don't go to the church, or that's why I'm not a Christian, or that's why I don't like Christians, because all this thing is all about God, God, God. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So we don't want to camp out on this moment and say that this moment defines God's character singularly. But we need to look at it. We need to look at it. We need to see the high cost of living a life where we get to sit in the king's throne and we get to call the shots. You see, the only way that we can reject being like Herod is to seek to give God more glory than we take on ourselves. The only way that we can really and truly live a life that is opposite of Herod is to consistently seek to put more glory back on God than we take on ourselves. To verbally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, all of the areas of our lives, recognize that the reason anything is happening in and through us is because of a great and all-sufficient and powerful God that is moving in us to get that stuff done. You see, Paul recognized this whenever he said he's the chief of all sinners, when Scripture tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one Verse twenty four is a beautiful verse here. It says, "But after the, it says, uh, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied." That's one of those great "but" statements in the Bible. Herod tried. He did a lot of work. He even had a fancy robe made for himself and planned and coordinated these games. But he died. He was eaten by worms. But the Word of God, on the other hand, it increased and multiplied. That word multiplied is a beautiful word. I'm not a huge math guy. I don't love numbers. But multiplication is awesome when you see it play out in the church. Addition happens in small increments. Multiplication happens in exponential increments increments. Luke's purposeful and intentional in using this language. When he says that the word of God increased, you could even say that that would be addition and multiplied. The word of God prevailed. The word of God stood firm. The word of God kept moving. John Stott wrote a book called The Message of Acts. It's his commentary on it. And he says, at the beginning of this chapter, Herod is on a rampage, arresting and persecuting. At the end, he is himself struck down and dies. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Such is the power of God to overthrow hostile human plans and to establish his own in their place. Think about that, how it all got started. Verse chapter 12 got started with telling us that James was put to death, that Peter was in prison, and that Herod was on a rampage moving towards victory. In one short chapter, what happens is all that gets turns on, it, turned on its head. Herod's dead, Peter's free. And the word of God is increasing and multiplying. That's how God works when he gets the glory. That's how God works in and through people like Peter, like Barnabas, like John Mark, who we're going to see. Later on, we just refer to John as John Mark because nobody knows what to call him, John or Mark. This book of Acts that we've been going through is really remarkable. We've gone through, uh, There, there are. by the way, there are 16 chapters left in this book for us to get through. But let's just stop for a second and look at what we've seen so far. At the beginning of the book, the church consisted of about 100 people. 100 people gathered in one single city who didn't really have anything more than... Uh, an impossible mission, and a commitment to pray. They had an impossible task before them, and they knew they needed to be committed to pray, about 100 people. That's how this whole thing gets started. Now, they're they're actually empowered and dwelled with the Holy Spirit of God, and they're armed with God's Word, and those same hundred or so Christians have multiplied into the thousands. And we can find Christians scattered outside of the borders of Israel. They're even in very weird and unlikely places like uh, Ethiopia. An Ethiopian eunuch, a one-time persecutor of the church in Paul, a Gentile army officer. And when you add all that up, just in these first 12 chapters, it's almost unbelievable that the story's not even half over yet. But God was present with his people and his spirit kept moving to fulfill his promises, just like the angel told angel Gabriel told Jesus's mother in the start of Luke's letter. In Luke 1:37 Gabriel says this to Mary. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. Acts 1 through 12 focus on the birth of the church, the expansion of this message. It focuses in on what Peter's doing and how Peter's getting it done. What we see in verse 25 of chapter 12 is a shift that we're going to focus in on pretty much the rest of the book. And it's, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And what we're going to see from 13 on is Paul planting churches. We're going to see these thousands of people that have scattered throughout the known world. We're going to see that Paul goes to where these people live and gets them organized as churches. Not institutionalized, organized. And Paul lives by this mantra that we're going to close with in singing. That God is for us. That anything we can stand up against and we can move forward because God is for us. And anything good that happens, God gets the glory. And anything bad that we think is bad that happens, God's got to be up to something. So we trust him. Because he is for us, and if our God is for us, then who could stand against us? If you're interested, next week we're going to look at verse thirteen or chapter thirteen. We're even going to go in through the first part of fourteen. It's a lot of ground we're going to cover next week. But uh, if you get a chance, I'd encourage you to read that. I'd encourage you to read chapter thirteen and about half of fourteen before you come in next week, and uh, we're going to look at that together. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. May it increase and multiply in our hearts, in our homes, in our lives, in our workplaces, in our relationships. May your word increase and multiply. May you get all the glory for it. Lord, thank you for the gift it is to sit back and marvel at what you do. And I pray that that is our posture. Because you are for us.